you here at Christian Fellowship Church is the Word of God. Uh, Every Sunday we have a part of the service where we explain and apply what the Word of God teaches us. We believe that Christ builds His church through the Word uh, and the faithful preaching of it. So we want to encourage all of you this morning to have a Bible and to read along with us as we as we walk through God's Word. And so if you brought your Bible or you have a phone, uh, please pull those out to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, if you just want to raise your hand and kind of keep it raised, our friends in the back will pass out Bibles to you during this time. Before we dive into God's Word, let's pray together for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, uh, that, that we don't have to seek you out through some mysterious uh, medium. We can understand what we need to know about you through your word, that you have uh, described yourself as infinitely glorious and you described us as completely sinful, God, but that you did not uh, leave us in our sinful state, but you sent your son to come and die for us, to save us, to justify us, to sanctify us. Father, I pray that our time together in the Word this morning would be that, a time of sanctification, of making us more like you. As we read uh, the words that the Apostle Paul spoke, uh, that we would see your heart and see your glory in it, that we would apply it in our lives that makes your message more glorious and your church more beautiful uh, in our our lives outside of this place. And Father, we pray for your blessing on the, the reading of your Word, the preaching of your Word. Uh, God, that nothing would get in the way of it, not the weather, not uh, this human vessel, not our, our limited attention spans, but that you would uh, plant your word deep in us this morning, that we would uh, come away with a greater understanding of you. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. I want to start our time together this morning by reading three quotes to you. And as I'm reading these quotes, I want you to imagine in your mind the culture and the time in which you think these quotes were written. So as I'm reading through, imagine in your mind the time and the culture you believe these quotes might have been written in. And so the first one goes like this. Marriage is a weak, despised, and rejected estate, especially with the young men who flee in fear at commitment. And everywhere, women are said to make fools of men. Both sexes look at the birth and raising of children with dread. Having seen how much effort, anxiety, pain, need, care, and work are involved in marriage, they would not recommend it to a dog. Second quote. Must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, Stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, care for my wife, provide for her labor at my trade, take care of this and take care of that, do this and do that, endure this and endure that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves. What? Should I make a prisoner of myself? Oh, you poor, wretched fellow. You have taken a wife? Shame, shame upon such wretchedness and bitterness. It is better to remain free and lead a peaceful, carefree life. And this one's my favorite. It's short and brief. Marriage 
Brief is the joy, lasting the bitterness. Now, if you had to name a culture and a time that those quotes were written, I imagine many of us are thinking, that has to be America right now. Has to be. You can pick up any uh, magazine, you can watch any movie, listen to any song, watch any TV show, read any article on the internet, and you know our culture has very little value on marriage. But those quotes were not written in America or in the 21st century. Those quotes were written in England in the 1500s. Those quotes were written in England in the 1500s by historians describing the culture and view of marriage outside of the church. What I'm going to contend this morning is that when the church doesn't have a definition of what marriage is, culture will want no part of marriage. When the church does not have a definition of marriage, the culture will not want any part of marriage. And into that culture, in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 theses onto the door of the church in Wittenberg. We're celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of that moment on October 31st. When he nailed the, those theses on the door, it started a revolution, a reformation, restoring the gospel to the church. And when Luther restored the gospel to the church, there were also unintended reformations, one of those being the institution of marriage. Luther spoke into the culture of marriage at that time, both in the church and in the world. And through his life, in the life of his predecessor, John Calvin, in 50 years' time, the culture of the church and the culture of the world completely changed in their ideas of marriage. Now, I'm not going to promise today that if we uh, develop and understand a biblical definition of what marriage is, that, that culture is going to change and unrespect us. But I am saying that as the church, we need to be able to answer the question, what is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? I, I did a lot of research this week online and, and article after article after article was marriage is for the purpose of having children. Marriage is for the purpose of love. Marriage is for the purpose of commitment and contentment and friendship. But I want to say that marriage is far glorious, far more reaching than we could ever imagine. And so we're going to look today at Ephesians chapter 5, one of the, the premier texts of the Reformers as they sought to reform this institution of marriage. And we're going to walk through it and, and see what they said about marriage, what the purpose of marriage is, how that transformed their culture, and how it speaks to us today in the 21st century America. So Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through a lot of these verses, the first eight, really, really quickly. You're going to hear a lot of statements that are going to hit your ear the wrong way or, or make you have questions or doubts. Save those things. We're going to walk through it really quickly. We're going to spend most of our time in the last three verses and then work backwards towards the other eight. Um, so I'm going to read through it quickly. Follow along in your Bibles with me. We're going to pause when we get to verse 30. Verse 22, he says, Wives, of chapter 5, Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And so Paul says all of that to bring us to verse 30. He says, because, because of all that, the reason we do all that is because we are members of his body. We'll come back to that in a second. But then he, he transitions into verse 31 where he says this, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Paul's going to tell us this morning that in order to understand what the purpose of marriage is, you need to jump back to the beginning of marriage. Paul doesn't say, let's look at what the culture says about marriage. Let's look at what tradition says about marriage. He says, to understand marriage, we have to go back to the beginning of marriage. Marriage was not created by man. It wasn't an institution forced on people by the government. Marriage was created by God and blessed by Him. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 2 where God creates everything in Genesis 1 and 2, in chapter 2 He creates all the animals and He, he creates man and puts him in the garden. He says, it's not good that the man is alone. But the man didn't understand that it was not good that he was alone. And so God brought two, all the kinds of animals before Adam and he gave the charge to name each animal. And as the animals are coming through from A. aardvark to Z. zebra, he sees that each one has a pair, a mate, a completion, male and female. And when he gets to the end, he realizes he doesn't have that. He's missing that. And so God puts him to sleep and out of his rib creates woman. And, and when he wakes up from his sleep, he sees woman and he immediately starts singing in the Hebrew. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one is like me. This is my completion. This is my wife. And what we see in, in this beautiful image is that God brings the woman to Adam God doesn't withhold her. God doesn't send her away. God brings the woman to Adam. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so God creates marriage and God blesses marriage. God gives away the bride at the first wedding. That brings us to verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, to understand the purpose of marriage, we go all the way back to the beginning and we see that God created marriage. And then he adds this interesting comment. Verse 32 says, this mystery is profound. This mystery, this, this marriage is profound. This mystery of marriage. Mystery isn't something that you can't understand. It's incomprehensible. When Paul uses marriage, he's saying the meaning of this thing could not be comprehended or understood until Christ. What Paul is saying is that marriage was a mystery. From the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Christ, people were married and given in marriage. 
but they didn't truly understand the purpose of that marriage. Paul says, now we know. It was a profound mystery, but because of Christ, we know the purpose. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul saying this temporary illustration of marriage points to the eternal union of Christ and the church. Or to put it another way, the illustration of marriage points us to the gospel. Paul says it's a mystery that we finally understand and refers to Christ and the church. The Reformers wrote a lot about this verse. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of books, different Reformers, different authors. And and what they said was, we need to know that Paul is telling the truth here and that we're not misreading him. Is marriage truly a mystery that's now revealed in Christ that we can finally understand as referring to Christ and the church? And they give us four ways of understanding this better. The first one is to understand that Christ was the plan from the beginning. If Scripture can teach that in Genesis chapter 2, when God created man and woman and gave them in marriage, that during that time He had planned to send Christ to die for sins, knowing that Adam and Eve would rebel, knowing that substitution would be necessary, Christ would come and die. Scripture must teach that that was planned before the first marriage. Let's look at 2 Timothy 1.9. It says this, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. There's many verses we could have read that talk about this, that before the foundations of the world, before the ages began, Christ was the plan. And so Paul can say that when God created marriage in Genesis chapter 2, it's referring to Christ in the church because God already knew Christ would die for us. Second line of proof, they said if we can prove that throughout Scripture, God uses the metaphor as husband to relate to his people, then we can know that it refers to Christ in the church. And you see this throughout the Old Testament God says, I'm your husband and you're my bride. The entire book of Hosea is based on this fact. One of the the most clear verses is Isaiah 54, verse 5. It says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. I like how Isaiah does this. He leaves no doubt as to who the husband is says, He's your Maker. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Holy One. He's your Redeemer. He's the God of the whole earth. Those are His names. He's also your husband. If He's the husband, that means Israel is the bride. And so that metaphor has been used throughout the Old Testament and carries over now into the New Testament with Christ and the church. Their third line of reasoning is that if, if marriage means an illustration of Christ in the church, that we'll see an example of this in heaven. That it's not just here on earth that Paul speaks of it, but it's something we'll see in heaven. And we see that in Revelation 19, verse 7, 
where he says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb being Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And so the inauguration of the kingdom of God will be his grand celebration, and it will be a marriage where Christ is finally united with his church. And so the last line of logic they had was, if marriage was created in Genesis chapter 2 as reflecting Christ in the church, we need to see in Scripture that marriage is temporary. We need to see marriage as temporary because if, if it points to Christ in the church and in heaven Christ is with the church, then we won't need the illustration. Jesus gives us that in Matthew 22, verse 29 and 30. Jesus says, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What Scripture teaches is that marriage is temporary. It's earthly. It's for this place in this time. It was created by God in Genesis chapter 2 to point to Christ and the church. And we know this because God planned Christ from the beginning. We know this because the church is united with Christ in the kingdom, in the afterlife, and we know it because marriage is temporary here in this life. And so the Reformers took all of that information and applied it to Ephesians 5 and said, we know for certain the purpose of marriage is to reflect and display the union between Christ and the church. Where our earthly marriages are temporary, that union is eternal. Where this earthly marriage is, is bathed in sin and difficulty and hardship, that eternal union is pure and perfect and holy. We see this in Paul's own language throughout Ephesians chapter 5. We see that, that the church and Christ have a, a, a meaning in marriage. You see it in verse 22 first, he says that wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. In verse 23, he says Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, he says the church submits to Christ. Verse 25, he says that the Christ gave himself up for the church. Verse 29, he says that he nourishes and cherishes the church. In verse 30, he says we are members of his body. And then in verse 32, again, he says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Paul's language and the testament of the rest of Scripture shows us we're interpreting this correctly, that marriage is yes for having children, yes for love, yes for commitment, contentment, but that's not the main purpose. The main purpose is an illustration to the glory of Christ and the church. Now the Reformers would be mad if I didn't pause here and talk about how this union is formed. If you remember in January, Lucas preached on the Reformation and there were five big key ideas. We call them the solas. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. The Reformers knew you cannot talk about marriage without talking about the Gospel and the great truth of it. Nowhere 
in this passage should we get the idea that we unite ourselves with Christ by our own power, our own authority, by our own goodness. We don't unite ourselves to Christ by the good things we do, by prayer, by Scripture, by, by coming to church. Those are good things, but they don't unite us with Christ. In verse 23, uh, he says that Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Christ is the Savior of the church. In verse 25, he says He, he gave Himself up to the church. So we enter into this union with Christ because He is our Savior who gave Himself up for us. Not on our own works, not on our own deeds. Christ saved us by giving Himself up for us, by dying on the cross. So we are saved by grace. We enter into this union by grace and we are kept and and sanctified in this union by Christ. Look at the, the verses in verse 26. It says that he might sanctify her, that Christ would sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the word. In verse 27, he says he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that the church, she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ saves us by his grace and he keeps us by his grace. The third thing to note about this passage uh, before we get to some application, how Luther and the Reformers applied it to their context. The roles described in marriage flow out of these great truths. And so Paul says that marriage is an illustration of Christ in the church. Christ secures that union through giving himself up for us and he sanctifies us through that. Therefore, in earthly marriage, as a reflection of that marriage, there are roles. Christ gives himself up for the church, and the husband plays the role of Christ. The husband plays the role of Christ who who gives himself up for his bride, who seeks daily to sanctify her, to cleanse her with the word, so that she might be holy and blameless. That when the end of that marriage comes, when, when death separates the man would be able to present the woman to God the Father more holy than he received her on the wedding day from her father. And so you see this illustration in marriage. The father will walk the bride down the aisle, imitating Genesis 2 where God brings the woman to Adam. And the, husband, the, the father will then pass the hand off to the groom of his daughter saying, I trust you with her. I, I served her. I loved her. I prayed for her. I studied Scripture with her. Now I'm handing that off to you. The man then walks life with her and trains her and loves her and cares for her as Christ loves the church. On the day of death, he passes that hand off to God the Father and says, this is your bride, no longer mine. It's this beautiful illustration. And I don't know anybody who would hear that definition of headship of the husband and say, I don't want that. I don't desire that. I think every woman I've ever talked to has the desire for the the man to to be going somewhere, to be leading, have a desire to take her with her. The problem comes with the first few verses where it says, wives submit to the husbands. We don't have a whole lot of time to go through it. If you have questions, comments about it, I can uh, provide resources 
sermons for you to listen to. But in the role of marriage, if, if the man plays the role of Christ and the woman plays the role of the church. And that's not demeaning. That's not devaluing. It's not saying the woman has no voice, has no character, has no authority. She's lesser than man. It simply means as Christ submits, or the church submits to Christ, the woman submits to the husband. The roles in marriage are based off of the union it represents. So how did this apply to the time of Luther? Martin Luther had this quote where he said, For the estate of marriage does not sit well with the devil, because it is God's good will and work. This is why the devil has contrived to have much shouted and written in the world against the institution of marriage to frighten men away from godly life and entangle them in a web of sin. Martin Luther says that if marriage truly is a picture of Christ and the church, Satan will do whatever he can to attack it. Now, Satan didn't know until Christ the profound mystery of marriage, but he knew in Genesis 2 there's something different and unique about it. It's different than the relationship between animals. It's different between the relationship of, of parents and friends. The union of marriage is different. And he attacks it right away. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes to the woman and said, Did God really say you cannot eat from the tree? Right away attacks it. Attacks marriage because God gave the command to the man who passed it on to the woman, Do not eat from the tree. What Satan is saying is, can you trust God and can you trust your husband? Satan says, you won't die. You'll become like God. You don't need to serve him. You don't need to worship him. You can become like God. And the woman ate of the fruit and gave some to her husband who was where? Right next to her. And so Satan comes in and he attacks the authority of marriage right in Genesis chapter 3. And if you read through the book of Genesis, it doesn't take you long to see how good God is, or good Satan is, at destroying marriage. In Genesis chapter 12, you see Abraham essentially taking off his wedding ring and pretending not to be married. He does that another time, and also his son does that. In Genesis 16, you see the first case of adultery. Genesis 19, you see the first case of homosexuality. Genesis 29, you see the first case, or Genesis 19, you see the first case of incest. In Genesis 29, you see polygamy. In Genesis 34, you see rape. In Genesis 38, you see prostitution. God takes the, or Satan takes the good gift that God creates and attacks it. And you see that throughout the Old Testament, that God attacks marriages, especially of the men that God chooses to lead Israel. He uses marriage to destroy them, to harm them. You see this in the New Testament. You see this in the time of the early church. And you especially see this in the time of Martin Luther. In the time of Martin Luther, you heard those quotes from before that marriage is a despised and wicked state that you would not recommend to even a dog. It's better to live carefree because it's bitter and lasts forever. That was how the world saw marriage. So how did the church see marriage? How did the church see marriage? During that time, there's only one church before the Reformation, the Catholic Church, and they had lost the definition of marriage. They had lost the definition of marriage, and it started out early. Satan attacked the definition early in the early church. 
by 200 A.D. The prevailing idea amongst the, the biblical scholars, amongst the theologians, was this. It says, It is therefore certain that perpetual sacrifice is impossible for those who are subject to the obligation of marriage. So what they're saying is for those who are priests, those who serve in the church, those who are leaders in the church, they cannot do their job well if they're married. It says, I therefore conclude that only without perpetual chastity, not marriage, can ever offer perpetual sacrifice. They get that quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul is talking about relationships within context of marriage. And he says, Do not deprive one another of physical intimacy, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. What the early church fathers said is, is that a man of God is always in prayer, therefore he cannot have a wife. You see how they twisted Scripture. They didn't read the last part of it where it says, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Where the Word of God is not followed in the church, Satan gains a foothold in it. And he attacked this area in the early church and he attacked it hard. By the time of the 5th century, there was a guy by the name of St. Jerome who said this. Someone will say, do you dare to den denote marriage, which is a state blessed by God? His response was, I do not denote marriage when I set virginity before it. Marriage is honored when it is placed next after virginity. And so I praise marriage because it brings forth virgins. This is the influence of the Catholic Church that will last all throughout until the time of Martin Luther. The idea that men cannot worship and serve God if they are married. And they elevated celibacy above marriage. As a result of this, there's a couple traditions in the Catholic Church where they claim that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a perpetual virgin. She never got married and she never had other children. Because if, if virginity is the highest goal one can account for, how can the mother of Jesus not be? They then went further and said that marriage is a result of sin. In Genesis, marriage was not allowed until after the fall. That Adam and Eve were created. They were both virgins. They weren't married. They didn't have any interest in each other. And then sin happened, and then they got married. Then it became all marital relations, even in marriage, are sinful. And so married couples, they have to then offer up prayers and, and receive grace for what's commanded in Scripture for them to do in marriage. This then led to a rampant immorality amongst the papal office, amongst popes, amongst the bishops, elders of the Catholic Church. In 700 A.D., a guy, by the guy named St. Boniface said this about the, the monks in Germany. Almost no bishop was truly abstinent. Almost no bishop was truly abstinent. 
And so they valued celibacy. They devalued marriage, and it led to immorality in the church. There's one story I read about a man who would offer communion on Sunday, and he felt no guilt when when the woman he was sleeping around with came and, and accepted communion. And he felt no guilt when his illegitimate children followed her for communion. This is the culture Martin Luther writes into. Martin Luther became a monk, and as a monk, he took a vow of celibacy. And as he was studying, and as he was reading, and as he was studying Scripture, he realized that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because we're saved by grace, and the marriage is a picture of that grace, we should be able to marry. And so Martin Luther led a revolution amongst the early church where he would uh, marry different people of the clergy, nuns and bishops and priests. He married his wife in, in 1525. He had no idea what marriage was. He had no idea how to conduct himself in marriage. But as he speaks about his love for his wife, it is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever read. Martin Luther realized that if marriage is an illustration of Christ in the church, the leaders of the church should be married. Not commanded to be married, but they should be married. They should marry. All the early reformers in the church were married. They had children. And as a result of that, they were able to counsel people in the church who were married. The first time in church history where, where priests and pastors were able to counsel people through their marriages because they knew what it was like to be married. And so the revolution of marriage started with the understanding of the purpose of marriage. It spoke into the church culture of the time. And as a result of that, it spoke into the culture at large. In a book I read about the Reformation, it describes John Calvin's influence in Geneva. John Calvin was a pastor in Geneva, and he trained other pastors in that area. And there's a whole chapter on marriage in Geneva. And I just went through and I made bullet points of all the the good things that came out of this revolution, this reformation of marriage, and how it transformed culture. And I'm just going to read through the list really fast, but as you read through it, you're going to see a lot of what's in our culture today reflected in this list. And so with the Genevan authorities, along with the church, they outlawed mandatory celibacy for clergy, They encouraged all to get married. They set guidelines for courtship and engagement. They mandated parental consent, peer witness, church concentration, consecration, and state registration. What that means is when you get married and you sign your marriage license, there's the officiant who signs it, who's usually a member of the church. There's witnesses who sign it, and it's approved by the state that you are now married. He created a liturgy of marriage for the wedding ceremony, where every aspect of the marriage is a reflection of biblical truth. Just one real quick example of that. When at weddings, the groom is standing up at the front of the church, and he's there, and he's alone, and then you see people begin to walk in from the back. You see the grandparents and the parents, and in a perfect world, each grandparent has a pair, and each parent has a pair, and they walk down the aisle, and they take their seats, Then you see the bridesmaids and the groomsmen walk down. Each man has a woman as they walk down the aisle. 
You're seeing a reflection of Genesis chapter 2 where God brings the animals forth and shows Adam. But the man is alone. And you start to question, why is he alone? It's not good that he's standing up there alone. And then you hear the music and everybody stands and the bride comes in. Spent all morning, all day, getting herself ready, making herself beautiful. And she walks towards the man in the arm of her father who will give her away. Every part of the wedding ceremony is based in Scripture, based on scriptural truth. We thank John Calvin for that and the Reformation. John Calvin also reformed laws so that married couples had tax exemption and were able to adopt children more easily. He created rules for children to follow in the household. He introduced divorce, and adultery for, or divorce for adultery and desertion of husbands. He made husbands pay child support for the first time in history. He encouraged remarriage amongst people. He punished sexual immorality through the state. He put stock in the education of children. The first public schools were founded as a response to the Reformation. The new value placed on marriage placed a new value on children. And when you value children, you train them up, you teach them how to read, how to write, how to study Scripture. He created a system for abandoned and abused children. And he created protection and provisions for abused wives and widows. Fifty years after Martin Luther nailed the theses on the church door of Wittenberg, fifty years, the marriage of the culture was reformed and transformed. Now, obviously, it was not perfect. We know this. We see this in history. You just have to study the story of King Henry VIII, who had multiple wives that he executed, but he was Protestant. He believed that it was okay. So marriage wasn't perfect. Culture wasn't on board. Everything wasn't perfect. But it was reformed in the church and in the culture. So what do we do with this in our day? What do we do with this in our day? The first thing I want to say is that we cannot expect culture to agree with the church on marriage. We cannot expect the culture to agree with the church on marriage. And the reason I say this is because I walk through, Paul says, Scripture repeats, reformers taught that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. The gospel is foolishness. If they think the gospel is foolishness, how much more a marriage that's based on the gospel is foolish. And so our job here is not to reform and transform culture. It's to reform and transform the church. And as we reform it, extends outward into the culture. And so as you love your wives and as you love your children who will grow up to get married, you give them a, a new picture of marriage, a new definition of marriage. Marriage is not for your joy. Marriage is not about love. Marriage is not about companionship. Marriage is not about fixing loneliness. Those are good things. Those are benefits of marriage. But the real purpose is to reflect Christ and the church. This eternal, glorious truth is represented in this temporary picture of marriage. And so we teach that to our children and the youth that come into this church. We raise up a generation who values marriage. We create families who love marriage. When people come into your homes, they see that you love your wife and the wife loves you and they see that it's different than the rest of the world. And so as the church, 
We must base our conceptions, our definition of, of marriage on Scripture and not on culture or tradition. This is a church that stands on Scripture. And so we don't need to go into same-sex marriage, transgenderism, gender identity, sexuality before marriage, because we stand on Scripture. We know we stand on those things. And whatever culture tells us out there, whatever tradition stays in the United States, the church will not give in to culture, because culture doesn't determine the definition of marriage. Scripture does. And it's a picture of Christ in the church. So three points of application for us here this morning, real quick. Number one, and I want to say this very clearly, and I'm going to try not to say it wrongly or inappropriately. Uh, the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation valued virginity above marriage. We need to raise our children up so that they understand their identity is in Christ and not in their virginity. All right, We need to train our children up so that their identity is in Christ, not in their virginity. What I'm not saying is that we don't teach about sex, we don't teach about marriage, we don't teach about abstinence. We teach those things. Those things are not who our children are. Our children's identity is in Christ. And I say this because I went to Moody Bible Institute as a, a, as a student, and I saw the same story over and over and over again. Not just once, but multiple times. A girl would get married to a guy, they would have a beautiful wedding ceremony, and they would go off on their honeymoon. They would come back and I would ask how it went. The answer was usually terrible. Why was it terrible? Because I gave up who I was, was their answer. My whole life, the, the church taught me the most important thing about my faith is my virginity. most important thing about me is my virginity. And on your wedding night, when you lose that, they lost identity of who they were. And so we must train our children to value their identity in Christ and not their virginity. And so I'll teach that as the youth pastor to the youth, as parents, teach that to your children. Their identity is found in Christ, not in, in their virginity. Secondly, I want to stress to us this morning that marriage is good. That does not mean that singleness is bad. Marriage is good. That doesn't mean that singleness is bad. Throughout this whole sermon, the idea was marriage is good, marriage is good, blessed by God, created by God, an illustration, it's good for us to enter into. That does not mean that singleness is bad. All right, Jesus was single, Paul was single. The verse we read from 1 Corinthians 7, 5, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's good to be single because when you're single, you can devote more time to the church. Now, if marriage was the ultimate purpose of our existence, if marriage had another meaning other than Christ and the church, I would preach just get married. Just find a husband, find a wife, do whatever you could to get married. But it's not. It's an illustration. It's a picture. So singleness is not bad because single people still participate in the life of the church. So I know everyone here is very well-meaning, well-intentioned, but when you come up to the single guys in the church and say, hey, when are you getting married? I don't know. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. If I never get married, I'm okay. Right? Yes. Amen. 
got you off my back. <laughs> uh, no, but there are people who will be single. They'll stay single. We don't want to treat people like that as they're inferior. They're not welcome into our small groups, our growth groups, into our church. Christ loves single people. Single people can serve the church with more energy, more passion than married people, than family people. I realized that this week more than I ever had in my life, watching four children for five days. I, you all are amazing who have wives and children, husbands, amazing. I don't know how you do it. Singleness is not bad, though. The third thing I want to emphasize is to the men of the church. The men of the church. Your role in your marriage is to function like Christ. Function like Christ. That is not an easy task. That is not easily accomplished. You need the grace of God to do that, and you need the Word of God to do that. Your wives need you to do that. Your children need you to do that. Now, I'm not saying that wives can't pray with their children, read Scripture with their children. What I am saying is that your wives would love it if you initiated. If you gathered the family every night for prayer and for studying of God's Word. Because ultimately, men, you are responsible for the health of your wife and the health of your children, health of your family. We know this because when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God confronts them, and who does he call to an account first? Adam. Who ate the fruit first? Eve. Who was deceived? Eve. Who gets called on first? Adam. Whose sin is, does Paul say we are born into? Adam. We're born into Adam. We're born again in Christ. And so as men... Uh, we want you to stand up and lead your families, love your wives like Christ loves the church, to give yourself up for her and for your children, to show them the glory of this union between Christ and the church. Next week, you guys are stuck with me again. We're going to come back to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at how the Reformation changed church. So men, you are not in this alone. You have the backing of the church behind you, the elders behind you. We're here to train you, teach you to do those things. So next week, come back. We'll talk about the Reformation more, how this passage applies to the church. But the Reformation reformed and transformed marriage, bringing it back to the gospel truth that it portrays. It's a union of Christ and the church. And so what's the purpose of marriage? It's an illustration of Christ in the church. That's our definition. That's where we build from. All the roles of marriage flow out of that. The gospel is a reflection of that. In the time of Martin Luther, they lost sight of what the gospel was, therefore lost sight of what marriage is. Thankfully, we owe it to them as a restoration of the gospel and a restoration of marriage. And so for men, I pray for you as you lead your families. Wives, I pray for you as you submit to your husbands. I pray for those who will be married someday, those who are married now and soon won't be, that we will be united with Christ in eternity as His eternal bride, glorifying, worshiping Him for the rest of our lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this glorious truth of marriage. God, we thank You that You are a God who's in control of all things, sovereign over everything, that knew everything that would happen here on earth and that you had a plan 
send your son and, and that you created an institution of marriage to reflect that plan. God, I pray as we, as we love our wives, as we submit to our husbands, as we uh, raise our families, as we uh, enjoy our singleness, as we enjoy our youth, that you would bless those opportunities. Remind us daily of the gospel. Remind us daily of the truth of what marriage portrays. God, may we never lose sight of that truth. May we never argue from a different perspective, but from your scripture. God, I pray that in all things that your word would guide this church and not someone's opinions, not what culture says or not what tradition says, that we'd always come back to your word. We thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, please stand and sing together. Jesus, only Jesus. Who has the power to raise the dead? Who can save us from our sin? He is our hope, our righteousness. Jesus, only Jesus. Oh! 